Well, uh, it is good. It is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. And I wonder if we would admit something here this morning. I wonder if we would admit that we think we're in charge. Now, kids, you think you should be able to determine when bedtime is. Kids, you think you should determine how to use your cell phones. And parents, you probably shouldn't be giving little ones cell phones. I'll let you wrestle with that. But kids, you think you should determine whether or not mom and dad are cool. And just so you know, we are. All right? Adults, you wrestle with the same thing. You want to determine other people's decisions. Safely control the outcomes of those you love and even dictate how successful you are in career and family. Uh, What about as a church here at Lakewood? As a local church, we think we're in charge as it relates to how things should be ordered and what results will come of it. While the American context certainly amplifies the Burger King, Democratic, have-it-your-way kind of living, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It's actually a sinful condition that started back in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve sitting in a garden seeking more control and authority in their life. Now, sure, they were tempted by another, but the blame fell on them. You see, God's authority over them wasn't their best life now, or so they thought, and they turned away. Immediately, immediately we start to see a correlation in our own hearts, in our own context, as well as the book of Joel. What is the underlying issue in this southern kingdom, Judah? Why did God send the locusts, this army of grasshoppers, to destroy their land? Well, the the simple answer is, God's people were unfaithful. They sinned and they turned from God's laws and ways. And they broke their promise under this Old Testament, Old Covenant relationship. But what was the underlying wrestle in their hearts? They woke up every day, just like we do. And they thought to themselves, what do I want? (laughs) What should I choose? What are my preferences? What is my take on relationships and family and job and the world? Me, 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 me. Well, Judah's issue behind their unfaithfulness and sin, the reason they weren't seeing the change in their hearts and in their lives that they wanted, was because they thought they were in charge. They had come to worship self rather than God. So as we come to Joel 2 in this morning, just so you know, we're going to hear some heavy language of judgment and darkness. Uh, Our main question this morning is simply this. Am I my own authority? That's a real question. And the very spiritual and safe answer to give in a setting like a local church is to smile and say, oh no, I'm not my own authority. Jesus is. Okay. Now you can sew that on a pillow, post it on social media. 
But the truth is that often we don't look much different. I don't look much different than the world. You see, we Christianize our autonomy. We are in charge with a little Jesus sprinkled in. Well, God has a word for Judah wrestling with this and us as we and the unbelieving world around us seek control over our own lives. So in the context of the coming day of the Lord, we will wrestle with the underlying issue going back to the garden. The issue of authority. So read with me, please, Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll have it on the screen as well. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, and as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who, who can endure it? Well, this is God's word. Sober words, yes. And we're going to consider this question of authority through the judgment of the day of the Lord in, in three ways, I think, here in our passage. First, we'll consider Joel's words as we are faced with how judgment is near. That's what we read in verse 1. Now, many scholars suggest that these verses in the beginning of chapter 2 are something of a transition from the historical plague that they were experiencing to now looking to a future plague. And that's something that we covered some of the past couple weeks in Joel 1. So, blow a trumpet, Joel says. Well, more, more, literally, more literally, a shafar. Uh, a ram's horn, a Jewish instrument that would often be one long sound sounding and alerting some kind of an announcement. Think of when you watch a Minnesota Vikings game and they blow that horn and that's just to let everyone know we're about to lose this game. It's, it's a similar horn to that. 
But in wartime, the horn would sound off when there was imminent danger in the land of Judah. It would warn the people and invoke the presence and the blessing of God. And an enemy would cross the border and someone would say, Blow the shafar! Let the people know and signal to God for help. What's interesting in verse 1 is where the horn is blown. It's not signaled at the border with some enemy crossing by, but it's in Zion on the holy mountain. The southern kingdom, Judah. What is their prized city? Well, it's Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of Zion. And Mount Zion, as it was known, was a hill in Jerusalem just outside the walls of this ancient and historical city. The alarm sounds from within. Zion is this stronghold for the people. The pending doom, it doesn't come from the outside. The pending doom doom comes from the inside. As it always is with the people of God, our greatest threats are not outside of us, but inside us. So, it comes from the outside, some, not some outside force, but, but it comes from the Lord Himself. As Joel says, the whole land should tremble, stutter, and have a reverent fear. But it's this last phrase that strikes us as odd. Now, we've begun to see as we walk through the prophet's proclamation that the central message is a future day of the Lord, a coming judgment and restoration that will come on God's people in the entire world. The odd phrase to us finishes verse 1. Look again. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. The wrap and conclusion on human history, it's, it's near. Joel has written this from anywhere 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. That doesn't seem like near to me. But Joel isn't alone. Many biblical writers talk about the coming, the nearness of the day of the Lord. So here's, here's a sample of just a few of the biblical writers. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. Children, it is the last hour. We know that it is the last hour. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In these last days. These are the last days. He has spoken to us by his son. So we're left with questions. If the biblical authors thought the day of the Lord was near, it was the last days. If they were convinced that the coming of the Lord and the conclusion of all things was close. Where where does that leave us in 2023? In fact, this has been the struggle for much of Christian history. Every generation, every generation becomes convinced that the signs of the times are present and the end is near. As every era passes, we see wars, brokenness, cyclical patterns of depravity and sin with new twists. And everyone says, the time, the event, the end, the day of the Lord is near. 
we will continue to see through Joel, as we touched on it last week, that with the work of Christ on the cross, the day of the Lord, the final event of judgment and restoration, it has already begun as Jesus suffered destruction on our behalf and brings new life to those who cling to him. But the fulfillment of Joel's words and other Old Testament prophets and even Jesus himself, when will those words be fulfilled finally and fully? And what does nearness mean if it's already been so long? Well, you can be near both in time and in space. So here's an example. Every kid, I'm sure not these kids in this room, you all look very sweet and polite. But just imagine a kid, perhaps. Or maybe some of you grown-ups can relate to this in experience. So you're a child. And you look, or you look back on your childhood, and you have a summer day in June, not much unlike today, and you're home with your mother. And you haven't fully gotten into the groove of school being out, and you've been staying up late and sleeping in late, maybe feeling boredom, feeling some frustration with your mother for whatever reason, and you do something that no son or daughter should ever do. You disrespect mama. Uh, no. Maybe you yell at her. You speak sharply to her. You walk away from her. And she says to you, you're in trouble. You broke the basic level of respect and decency. No, you didn't. I think that's how moms say it. We have a decent level, a, a, a main level, a base level of respect in this home. When your father comes home, the two of us will talk. Well, first we're going to convene in the closet and cry, but then we're going to talk and you'll be appropriately punished. Now, what a wonderful illustration on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all you fatherly figures out there. So the day continues and it's 3 p.m. and your mother reminds you, your father is near. Now, two things can be true of that statement. Dad could be near because of the nearness of time. Perhaps he gets off work at 3.30 a little early and the time is near. Or it can mean that dad is near as it relates to space. He is close to act. The judgment that awaits your actions is ready to be sprung upon you. Here's how one pastor talks about the nearness of Joel 2. He says this, quote, Evidently, it was near, not in the sense that it had to happen soon, but in the sense that it was on the brink of happening. Conditions were ripe for it. The mass troops were just across the border. The trumpet was on his lips when the commander raised his hand and made peace with his rebellious people. Here's how our brother Peter says it in his epistle. 2 Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So the prophets and the apostles, they didn't know the time of the day of the Lord. 
They only knew that it was near. It could be brought at any moment. So what is the purpose in communicating that, by the way? Why is this such a theme in the scripture and repeated so often? The day of the Lord is near. Why would that be a part of the constant reminder before our eyes? Well, remember the doctrinal confession that we read earlier in our service? I'll I'll read it in part. The coming of Christ, which brings with it the day of the Lord. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God. It demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, an energetic mission. See, Joel communicated to Judah that the day of the Lord was near. The nearness was to spur them on, as we'll see later in chapter 2, to a life of faithfully following. A life given over to God in a fresh way. A life that was true to the mission and the purpose that God had given them. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. Faithful followers of Christ today, like every generation before us, we do not know the time when it will come, but we do know that it was near. It is near. It can then be unleashed at any moment. So what will motivate you to go out tomorrow and make disciples, to reproduce faithful followers of Christ, to obey the great commission that Jesus gave us to love and to bring others near to God? What would motivate us to go do those things? Judgment and restoration. The day of the Lord is near. It's on the brink. Conditions are ripe for it. So we're not called to worry, to fret, or to complain, or to sit aimlessly. No. We are called to go out and to be faithful to Jesus. The nearness of God, the call for heightened alert, alludes to the fact that we are not our own authority. There is an authority over our life. Someone has something to say about how we use our life, and the scriptures say that he's on the way. So, our call is to be really good stewards of our time, of our money, our relationships, of the days that we're given before He comes. It is near. But notice also in our passage how judgment appears, how it looks in verses 2 through 5. Joel says that the day of the Lord, this judgment coming on the people of God, it will include an army of locusts that looks like horses. And not the cute ones that you want to ride, I, I think. I think they're scary ones. And they will stand before a lush land like the Garden of Eden and consume and burn everything they pass over. Scorched earth kind of message, right? Grasshoppers that are so powerful of an army that no one has ever seen anything like it and they'll never see anything like it again. But I want to focus, however, for our time here this morning on the beginning description of this appearance Found in the beginning of verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. This is something of a theme throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Old Testament through the new. Darkness and gloom are associated with the holiness and the judgment of God. So in back in Deuteronomy. Moses reminds the Jewish people. That the mountain where the commandments of God were given. Mount Sinai. It was wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. 
Well, you look forward and in Revelation, the Apostle John writes of judgment coming, locusts who look like horses, just like Joel 2. And after that, he says that the land would be plunged into darkness. Now, you won't read the scriptures long, and you'll quickly come across the idea of judgment, darkness, gloom, and this stark reality of unpleasantness in our world and in our hearts. And the sobriety of God being someone we are accountable to, who in fact, he brings darkness and gloom. Now, on a personal note, I don't share these often, but it might be helpful for some here. I became a faithful follower of Christ just over 18 years ago. And as I was introduced to Christianity and the character of God and the nature of Scripture, one of the things that was a real selling point, if I can say it like that, one of the reasons the message of Christ proved so convincing to me personally was how the biblical writers, guided by the Spirit of God, they, they didn't hold back in the least. They don't. There's no sugarcoating to describing this world, the people in it, and the God who rules over it. So the idea of coming judgment on Judah, judgment coming on these religious people for turning their back on God, it demonstrates a couple clear evident truths. First, God's people are sinners. Aren't we? I am. In fact, the whole Bible and even Jewish and Christian history is chock full of them. As is, I would imagine, our church. There's no skirting around the issue in the scriptures. Even great men and women of the scripture that we come across. Moses, David, Mary, Peter. They were all stumbling about life imperfectly. Trying to follow the God that they claimed to love. The Bible lays out an authentic display of the failure of mankind. So here's some of the things that we come across as we read the scriptures. Hypocritical followers. Child sacrifice. Rape and incest. Graphic imagery of married life in the Song of Solomon. Wars, murder, hate, sexual deviation, lying, greed, pride... <laughs> Nothing, nothing, nothing is held back. It's all there. It's broken and raw, but real. The scriptures don't hold back as it relates to the messiness of this world. And as, as a 20-year-old, I found that very appealing. And I still do. But second, the coming judgment of Judah on these religious people, it plainly tells us that God's people and the world at large are not their own judge. We are not ultimately accountable to our spouses, our bosses, or even ourselves. The idea of judgment, the appearance of it in gloom and darkness, reminds us that a cloud hangs over our heads. We ourselves are no different than the wide array of characters found in these ancient writings. We may identify and more closely resemble some rather than others, but we're fundamentally no different. God himself brings justice, rightness, fairness, and accountability. 
Now, if you're here considering Christianity and judgment causes you to cringe some, well, be of good cheer. In fact, there are many faithful followers of Christ here. Uh, and it's, it's still a difficult concept and idea to wrap our heads around. Here's something for you to chew on if this is a bit of a sticking point for you. At our core, each one of us, at our core, if we're a decent person, we believe in justice. Wrongs should be righted. Terrible acts should be accounted for. And restoration and healing would ideally come. The darkness and gloom that God promises in Joel 2 is what you really long for. You do. You want justice. You want to know the bad guys will pay, either in this life or the next. Where the idea starts to rub us raw is when we have to wrestle with whether the payment of justice extends only to someone we might collectively agree that is evil, Hitler, or if it would fall on us too. Those of us who may generally be better when we compare ourselves to the bad guys, or those who even might be Christians, or those who aren't wicked but are something of a decent person. What, what about us? Is justice due to us for our evil? Or are we going to tell ourselves that we're okay because we're not as bad as that person? Well, I have good news for you, but I'm going to let you hang on for a moment and sit on the bad news first. Lastly, in this passage, in Joel's prediction of the day of the Lord, we see how judgment is unavoidable in verses 6 through 11. It's, it's quite remarkable. It's kind of a poetic reading, so you can get lost in it a little bit. But in these verses, the locust army of judgment coming down on God's people, they're everywhere. They're scaling walls, verse 7. Busting through weapons, verse 8. Climbing into houses, verse 9. It brings a darkness that affects the entire earth, verse 10. And, you know, lest any of us think that judgment will fall on one particular person, or state, or country, or continent, or people group. It says the earth and the heavens tremble. The sun, moon, and stars are darkened. It's, it's unavoidable for everyone. No matter who you are, where you are from, what you believe, what you've done in your life, or how decent we think we are, judgment is coming, Joel says. And make no question about it, this isn't some vague idea of judgment. This isn't some impersonal, hypothetical consequence. But verse 11 is pretty explicit. I'll, I'll read it again. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who? Who can endure it? That's heavy. Here's how the Apostle Paul frames it in the New Testament. Writing to a group of Christians, a church maybe not much unlike ours. Paul says this to Christians. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, okay, I told you it would get bad before it got good. But here's how skeptics and immature Christians will understand this. Oh, the message of Christianity. It's a guilt-driven religion. 
Oh, I have to work hard. I have to do my best. I have to have my good outweigh the bad. And maybe, just maybe, if I do enough, gloom and darkness won't fall on me. If I can just manufacture enough goodness, I'll be okay. The skeptic and the immature Christian both think that way. But Joel 2, this coming of the day of the Lord, the unavoidable nature of it, the reality of the authority of God over our life, it is communicated to Judah and to us to spur us on to live faithfully, zealously, and on mission. And it points us to our need for a Redeemer. We need someone to buy us out of our impoverished condition. We need someone who can rescue us from impending doom. If I am not my own authority, if I fall under God's authority, if Joel 2.11 is true, and the Lord utters His voice, and the army of judgment moves out, how can I endure it? Well, many years would pass. And the darkness and gloom of Joel 2 would in part be fulfilled. Judgment would come. The final judgment on humanity, not yet. But first, the wrath of God, the earth quaking and trembling on the day that Jesus hung. Matthew 27 reads in part this way. And here, if any of Joel 2 pops out as you hear Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curtain in the temple was torn in two, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Jesus, this Savior, knowing our need of rescue, knowing that we will be held accountable for our thoughts, words, deeds, the lives that we lead, knowing that like Judah, a final day would come, knowing that our hearts have turned from God, knowing that we would become convinced of our own authority in 2023, knowing the mess, not generally, but specifically, Wherever you are today, do you know that Jesus knows the mess? The fracturing in your family. The difficulty financially or physically. The concern that weighs heavy over you. Jesus knowing the mess. He came and lived and died in our place. And he rose again bringing peace between us and him. So instead of judgment... Uh, The judgment of God in Joel 2 falling on us, it fell on him. My friends, do you see the beauty of Christ? Jesus is the fulfillment of Joel 2 on your behalf. So what happens when we believe and trust in this saving work of Christ for us? We are given, the scripture says, and empirically, many of us know this, we are given new hearts, granted forgiveness, secured from heaven, and protected from judgment forever. And not just that, we are set free to live while we are here. Just as we sang earlier, we are set free to live as faithful followers of Christ, who live not for our own glory, but for His. Not under our own authority, but under His 
So am I my own authority? No. No, didn't you hear? Jesus died for me. To him I am loyal. To him I am accountable. To him I align my life and mission. Faithful followers of Christ, we welcome the day of the Lord. Because Christ has paid for our sin. That day of the Lord with darkness and gloom and restoration promised, we are not fearful of it, but we welcome it. Because we champion not our own work, not our own ability, not our own holiness and righteousness, but His. So guilt, shame, worry, fear, it's gone. I have Him. My friends, if you are here this morning, would you consider to look at Christ in a fresh way? Would you consider the heaviness and the darkness and gloom of Joel 2 and see the work of Christ on your behalf? Perhaps you are here and you've been struggling of late. Perhaps your season of following Jesus in this dangerous journey has been dry. The coming day of the Lord, this stern warning is aimed to point us to the great love of Christ for sinners. So no matter who you are or what you've done, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. And Joel 2, in this reality, informs our communion time. Would those who are serving communion uh, please step forward? And uh, I'll give a couple of instructions here about how we're going to do communion this morning. But let me offer a couple of qualifiers as we come and take communion. Communion is a physical, tangible reminder and remembrance of the work of Christ on our behalf. So as you come forward, you are coming forward declaring, the body of Christ was broken for me, the blood of Christ was shed for me. When you come forward, you are declaring, not my righteousness, but His. When you come forward, you are declaring, I am not my own authority, but I have been bought with the price of the Son of God. So if you are here this morning, and you are trusting in Christ, this meal is for you. <laughs> this meal is not for perfect Christians. This meal is for imperfect Christians flawed, deeply flawed, repenting Christians clinging to a good Savior. God does not require your perfection here this morning. He requires your clinging to Him. So if that is true of you, come. Come forward and receive and remember and tangibly taste the goodness, the presence, and the power of God in your life as you reflect on the gospel. And the second qualifier would simply be an invitation. If you are here and you do not know Christ, if you are here considering the work of Jesus, hear the heavy words of doom, gloom, and darkness, and consider the beauty of Jesus on your behalf. So what we're going to do is, as you can see, some of you are wondering, what is going on here with all these people standing up? Uh, we're going to come forward and take communion. Communion is going to be served to you. Everyone, as you come, we're going to stand and sing in a moment. But as you come, you're going to come in wherever you're sitting. 
come in, come down, and an individual, a brother or sister in Christ, is going to look you in the eyes and tell you that this is the body of Christ broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. You can choose to take communion up here or bring it to your seat and take it on your own. But reflect for a moment on Christ's work. Is it possible we've gotten to almost noon today and you haven't taken time to think of the goodness of Christ? Has he seemed far off? Would a physical, tangible reminder of the gospel enlarge your heart today? Would it help you remember? Would it spur you on to faithfulness this week? Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a hymn. And as we begin singing, come down.